Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It really isn't necessarily that your writing isn't good enough or that you're not good enough in any way. It's really like this isn't the right match. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Mira Trahan grew up in Virginia, where she read as much as she could, memorized poems, and ate enough cookies to earn the nickname Monster after the Cookie Monster. After attending the University of Virginia and Stanford Law School, she practiced law for over a decade before turning to writing for children. Her debut, the middle grade novel, The View from the Very Best House in Town, came out from Walker U.S. slash Candlewick in February 2022. So please welcome Mira to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story with my listeners. We're going to talk about your journey to publication, but we're going to start at the very beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? So unlike a lot of writers, I wasn't someone who grew up wanting to be a writer. And I think that's largely because it just didn't occur to me that I could do that. I love to read. I read voraciously. I did write poetry. um, And I thought writing was fun. But um, you know, I decided to pursue law, which I actually am glad I did. And I liked a lot and had a good experience with. Um, But it's funny in terms of pursuing it. There was a woman I worked with at the nonprofit I was at and um, who I liked. And she was leaving after um, she was saying she might leave after having her first child. And she mentioned she was a writer. And I was like, why does she get to be a writer? Luckily, I was self-aware enough to be like, I should probably examine that feeling because I actually Mm -hmm. like her. And why shouldn't she be a writer? Later, when I stopped practicing, I started taking some classes and um, writing kind of here and there a bit. Um, So at first, I just tried to write picture books and poetry. I just didn't think I was the kind of person who could write a novel because I didn't think I had the attention span. Even like as a lawyer, the longest thing I wrote was like 50 pages and novels a lot longer (laughs) than 50 pages. Like I would have ideas though, but I wouldn't be able to fully flush them out. And honestly, as a writer, I'm still like that. I can have ideas, but it's not till I'm at the keyboard that I can really figure out the whole story. And I mean, let's be more realistic, write like multiple drafts and then I can figure (laughs) out the whole story. But two things got me writing a novel. One was... I had this, so my very first writing class, which was probably about 10 years ago, I was talking to my instructor after class, and actually before the very last class. And I was like, I have this idea for a novel based on what you were talking about conflict. And I just gave her the basic setup. And she was like, that's really good. Um, She was a short story writer. And later in class, like two hours later, this was the first time I'd ever submitted work to a class. And I submitted a picture book that like 
probably like a lot of new writers, I thought it would be a lot easier to write a picture book than it actually is. And it was mm-hmm. not good. <laughs> <laughs> and my instructor, like, you know, dutifully gave me advice, but then she's like, you know what you really should be writing? You should be writing that novel. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, I was like, okay. <laughs> she clearly doesn't know me. That that idea for that novel just like stuck with me. It expanded, like little characters grew around the main characters. Um, and eventually I was like, maybe I should try to write that novel. And I did two things. One, I attended a class. It was only two hours long and it was called How to Write a Lot. Um, and there were a lot of really good tips, but the biggest one was just like, write and one set a contract with yourself about how much you're going to write and make the time. And then just don't let yourself look back, like just keep moving forward till you have a draft and then you can look back. And that was super helpful because I was definitely someone who would just get caught up on those first few pages, not being right over and over and over. And now I know like, I can't, I just have to start somewhere to like make myself get started. But that those, it's not at all a big deal if those first pages change and, you know, they probably will. And then I saw Katie Camillo speak at the National Book Foundation, maybe like a month after that, roughly. And um, someone asked her a question about one of her stories. And she's like, oh, that one came pretty easily to me. I wrote it in three or four drafts. I mean, often it takes me eight or 10 drafts. And instead of being like horrified, I was like, that's amazing. I have that many chances to try to get it right. Like, maybe I can do it (laughs) if I don't have to get it right. Like, right away because I'm not getting it right right away. So that was either late 2014 or 2015 that that happened. And I I sat down to write this novel, um, my first novel that did not get published. Um, And I, you know, probably took a little over a year at it and multiple drafts. And between drafts, I knew I didn't know what I was doing. I feel like that is actually one of my strengths as a writer is knowing what I don't know what I'm doing and then seeking help. And so for the first draft, I was like, I wrote some words. I don't really understand story structure. So I asked Mary Quattlebaum, who is just an amazing human being and a lovely writer and teacher. I, t- I was like, hi, you know someone I know, and <laughs> I need to learn about story structure. This was just at an SCBWI conference. And she's like, well, this is the text we use at the Vermont College of Fine Arts and writing for children's MFA. So you could try that. So I like went through it with a highlighter and and then, you know, really immersed myself in it. And then I wrote another draft. And then I I can't remember. I was like, well, whatever else isn't working, let me try that. And what was the text? Story by Robert McKee. Okay. What I think he does really well is like two things. One, he talks a lot about even within a scene, how you need like emotional shifts. Sometimes I might write a scene And all I really want you to know, especially early on, is, you know, that like there were five candles in the windowsill and it was dark, but I still need to figure out a way to make an emotional shift while working that in no matter what to keep the reader engaged. But he also um, breaks down movie text and talks about the beats and what's keeping the reader engaged. So that was really good. He definitely thinks a lot of his method. That's very clear from the text. (laughs) In terms of like getting what I needed to do in a scene and getting kind of what a big picture structure should look like, it was really helpful for me. Yeah, re- really, basically, it was like 2015, I wrote that novel. And then I was like, I guess it's time to query. I mean, and of course, by write that novel, I mean, it was multiple drafts, I had different people read it, all of that. But um, that kind of got me to my first query. And I did get an agent with that one. So we can talk a little bit about the process. But then 
I left agents between my first and second novel. So I have a lot of querying under my belt. Awesome. We will definitely talk about that in just a minute. Can you tell me about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author and also what you thought that might look like for you? I think even before I started my novel, I was writing picture book texts that I think I hoped would be published. I mean, maybe not my very first one, but pretty early on, I thought like, wouldn't it be cool to see this in stores? And with a picture book text, I mean, I think I did have enough of a sense of that genre genre, age category that I was like, wouldn't it be cool to see how an artist brought this to life, you know, Mm -hmm. what, what that could add. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing I thought, and so far this has been true, like it would be really cool to share my stories with someone else and connect with someone else. And have that experience. But I also thought like, wouldn't it be cool to see your book in a bookstore? You know, and I think one thing that's hard, I mean, I'll admit it, I think this is true for most people. I thought that there would be, you know, a certain affirmation of my work and my ability as a writer coming from publishing. And I mean, I think that is true. You definitely feel that. But I think what's really hard is that like the opposite is not true. Just because a work isn't published doesn't mean it's not extremely good. I think the best YA novel I've ever read um, is not yet published. It was agented, but didn't sell. And like, there's a million reasons that can be, but like the book I published, I feel like it's good, but I also know there was luck involved because there's other good things out there that didn't get published, you know? So Mm -hmm. especially like coming from law, I think you like things that are really clear cut and you like hierarchies (laughs) and all that. And it just, it's like, that's not publishing, you know? especially on the author end. It's not on the agent end either. (laughs) (laughs) So once you decided you wanted to be a published author, how did you learn more about the publishing industry? Like how it works, how to query, how to do all those different things? One, I took some classes. So I'm really lucky to live near the Writer Center in Bethesda. That's where I took my first class. And I did take like a how to query class there. So very early on in my querying process, I had to get on Twitter and I was someone who was like totally social media averse. And I mean, Twitter is definitely a mixed bag, but there are some wonderful writers there and there is some good advice. I think the problem is there's just a lot of advice and you need to be confident enough to kind of be able to filter it through and to be able to say, you know what, that might work for someone, but it doesn't work for me. And like, mm-hmm. like I, about now, maybe six months ago or something. I saw a piece of advice and it was like talking about point of view and writing. And it was like, well, you can write in first person present or first person past or third person past. So like the one thing that net does not work and you should not do is third person present. And I was like, I'm so glad I already have a novel that's sold that's in third person present or this yeah. might really get to me. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. I hate the prescriptive advice where it's like, you can't do this thing that hundreds of people have done well before. Like, what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm someone who likes craft books. So actually very early on in my writing process, I forgot this. So in that first writing class, there were resources. And one of them was Steering the Craft by Ursula Le Guin. And I love this craft book because it's not about writing a novel. It's really about like working on your sentences and working on your paragraphs. And what she says is like, if you have those tools in your toolbox, 
you're going to be so much more able to effectuate what you want on the page. And mm-hmm. when I feel demoralized about writing or whatever, I still sometimes go back and do some of those exercises. I mean, it's just working on really short sentences, working on really long sentences. And you can also be like, well, I don't really like that or I do, but she's definitely got a wit and a point of view about her that I really mm-hmm. appreciate that comes through in the text too. So you're giving us a lot of recommendations. I'm going to have to include them in the show notes in case people want to check them out. <laughs> I also did go to SCBWI conferences and there was a Washington Writers Conference and that was really helpful. Again, like there were ups and downs, but you know, there were times I left conferences demoralized because I was like, I don't do that or I didn't connect. But there were also I got some really good advice. And then, you know, meeting people. And then later on, before I, you know, I eventually took some classes at the Highlights Foundation and stuff, but that was much further along in my writing process. Mm-hmm. So then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from querying for the first time to signing your first book contract? I started querying like maybe at the very end of May, early June of 2016. In mid-June, there was a contest that I think was only run once. It was like for writers of color and native voices contest. And it was something where you posted your query and first pages. It was a little bit like pitch wars and then they'd be there and agents could chime in. And so for that, they were like, for tech help, you know, we'll do that mostly through Twitter. And I was like, better figure out this Twitter thing. <laughs> um, so I got on Twitter for that. It's funny because I got like 25, 26. I mean, I got a huge amount of agent interest. But I will say the best thing to come out of that contest by far was the fact that I met Maria Fraser, who's now a very good writing friend of mine. We co-mentored Pitch Wars together. In the end, none of those agents offered. And I was so, I mean, embarrassed really, because I was like, all these people knew that agents were interested in me. They must all think my manuscript sucks. Okay, for like, that's not how it works. That's not true. But in that moment, I felt that so deeply. And people were on Twitter, I didn't know, be like, oh my God, you're going to take off. And I thought that too, because I was brand new. And oh my gosh, everyone likes this book. And I mean, it did have a good concept, I think. And I, And I don't even think there was something necessarily wrong. I mean, the book did get agented so and got multiple offers. So, But querying can be such a jagged line and so many ups and downs. And for whatever reason, those agents weren't interested or I got an R&R, but it didn't necessarily fully resonate with my vision of the book. So I decided like it's not worth pursuing if just to get representation if I'm not going to be pleased with the end product. At the same time, though, I did query a bunch of other agents. And so this was like in June. So suddenly by like August, September, when I didn't have an offer and I'd gotten a fair number of rejections or just radio silence, I was like, oh, maybe this isn't happening. I got um, an R&R, revise and resubmit from a really great agent whose authors I admire. And it was so lovely. And I was kind of couldn't believe it. it. You know how, I mean, that's one thing when you're querying, like you just never know what's going to be in your inbox, which can be a little frightening, but every now and then it's really good. <laughs> so this was a really good moment. And I, her vision totally aligned with mine. What she said really made sense to me. And I rewrote it and I sent it off maybe, I don't know, six weeks later. I mean, it took time, but not an enormous amount of time, one or two months. And I was like, so excited. And then in the meanwhile, I also entered DV Pit and got maybe another 20, 25 likes, which might not sound like much now, but back at the time, I think it was, it was. I feel like it's still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was a pretty healthy, you know, I, I was happy for what, you know. So I sent out those queries, but I was just 
had my heart set on the agent who had given me that revise and resubmit. In the meanwhile, I got another revise and resubmit letter with somewhat different advice. And I just was like, well, let me just hold off and see how this plays out. Then she did an offer and she wrote me that the agent I wanted, she wrote me the nicest letter on how she liked me personally, how she loved my writing. The book involved 9-11 and she's like, maybe for me, it's just too hard to revisit that, which is a great lesson that like agents are people and they're going in with their own experiences when they read a book and, you know, finding a match, it's going to be two people coming together with everything that they've been through, you know, to that point. And so it really isn't necessarily that your writing isn't good enough or that you're not good enough in any way. It's really like, this isn't the right match. And you do need a really enthusiastic advocate for your work. I I, I have to say, I cried when I got that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So then I worked on my next R&R. In the meanwhile, I started getting sort of some rejection, some looking like there might be more interest. I got, I mean, I had a very high full request rate on this manuscript. I mean, over 60%, I think, if you include mm-hmm. the contest. So that I don't think is normal or necessary as my sense. Like, but I was a little spoiled, I think, with that. Like I I was just sort of used to getting full requests because I got so many. But then still some and I'd get a lot of the like, this is really good, just not for me. I'm sure this is gonna get published somewhere. And I kept thinking, like, well, if none of you say yes, it's <laughs> like someone has to say yes. Um, but I worked on my other R&R and sent that off. Um, and that was for Emily Mitchell at Wernick and Pratt. Emily offered me, made like sent me an email saying she was interested that March. So now we're in March of 2017. And I will say I got some pretty harsh rejections along the way. You know, it's so hard not to take it personally, but I don't think it is personal. And I, I mean, and I don't think it was a reflection on my work. So yeah, so I got my first offer, I guess it was actually March of 2017. I think I sent it to her in February and I got it in March. Then I notified everyone else and um, I was lucky enough to have three other agents who also wanted to offer. But I signed with Emily Mitchell, who... Um, I had done the R&R for, and I'm part of my thinking on that was the fact that we had worked together and she liked the work. And so I thought like, okay, I know what this experience is like and would be like. And we went on sub shortly thereafter. And then we were on sub for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) To the extent I could while we were on sub, the book ultimately did not sell. It went to, I don't know, maybe 20, 20 some uh, editors. I was to the extent I could working on my next book. And that's, everyone says, work on your next book while you're on sub with your first. And in some ways, I hate that advice because that's so difficult to do. And there probably are days where I was like, I can't do that. I'm just too stressed out. But somehow I managed to do it enough to have a second, like within a couple of years, I had a second book. And Emily and I had different visions on that book. And she was, she's, a wonderful person and a great agent. And she was willing to sell it anyway, but it was just very clear. Our visions for what the book should be were quite different. And um, so I decided to part ways and we had a very amicable partnering and she's lovely and still, you know, cheers me on. But so then I was querying again. <laughs> hmm. So how did that second round of querying go? You know, I approached it very differently the second time around. 
But I don't think it was wrong to approach it the way I did the first time around because I just had so much less knowledge. So the second time around, I was probably a lot more selective about who I queried because I knew so much more about, like I had friends who had been represented by people. I'd seen other people's experiences. And so I just had more knowledge, which you just do the longer you're in the industry and the more you get to know people. And I had a much better idea of what I wanted. I think one thing, another piece of advice that I think is right, but not very helpful is like, you know, either only query agents you'd want to work with, but like, how do you even know with a debut? And you don't know what it's going to really be like to work with someone. You might not even know your own style. Like, I think if you're querying and you don't really have that knowledge, it is good to query more widely. Also, I had people, you know, had shown interest in my work, you know, who were like, if you're ever querying again, or there was an agent who missed sort of my internal, my deadline, because I had to let Emily know by a certain day. And she got back to me maybe the week later and was like, you know, I see I missed your deadline. I was like right on the fence about this. If you're ever querying again, please keep me in mind. So, you know, you have those people too. So then that Mm -hmm. helps you develop your list. I sent out a small number. I want to say like four, you know, almost to someone who already had made me an offer. Um, You know, I didn't query an agent who made me an offer because she was close to queries. And later she kind of reached out to me and I didn't, I shouldn't maybe tell her that. And I was like, but you were close to queries. But now I'm like, oh, I probably could have just written her a note and been like, hey, do you want to see it? But I was like, still trying so hard to follow the rules. And I was like, I don't Mm want to bother her, you know. I can confirm that if you are querying again and an agent has previously offered, definitely reach out to them however you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think I think from the author side, I mean, and it depends on the author, but assuming you're like a well-mannered, respectful author, sometimes you feel like you're bugging agents by reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you're reaching out to them every week or every month, you are bugging them. I think I can say that even not being an agent. But like reaching out for a legitimate reason because you have a question, like it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, even going in that second time, I think I was afraid of bothering people. So um, unfortunately, though, I did not get an offer within two weeks of sending out those first ones. And in fact, um, got some very kind, quick rejections. And so then I was like, okay, you know, it's been, I don't know, a month or whatever, but I've gotten some feedback. And I personally did look at Query um, Tracker to see what agents actually respond and how quickly they respond. Because I really do use or did use those early letters as a test. Like, how's my letter working? You know, if my letter's not getting many requests, let me focus on my letter. And so for me to have someone who like, it's like, wait six months and don't respond that, I mean, if I had a really good reason to query that person, sure, I might, but that would be a reason not to query them. And I think I actually even made a list like how good a fit I think they'd be and this and that. But then I also put like, what kind of, how do they tend to respond? And and that didn't mean that I'd never query them, but maybe that they weren't going to go in that first round for me because I was trying to get data with this too. Spoiler alert, didn't get an agent at all that summer. Um, but over the summer, I maybe sent out 10 queries in roughly three, 10 to 12 queries in roughly three batches. So I was going pretty slowly and I got a couple full requests. I had a number of rejections that were like not requesting the full, but clear they 
read it and thought it was good quality. I, I mean, it was clearly not their form form. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a couple sentences or, you know, one talked about how she laughed out loud at the first pages. And I think the work was maybe a little too similar to one of her other authors or, you know what I mean? But but the other thing is, I also was careful not to query all my, my first choice agents right away because I was like, well, if it's not a great letter, I want to make sure I have people I'm really excited about. And so some of my critique partners were like, how's it going? How's it going? And this is going to sound kind of stuck up, but I think it was true. My book was good. Like, it was very good. And I think they were like, "Like you should be getting more interest in this book. It's a really good book. And so I was like, they're all, and they were even like, can we see your query letter? <laughs> it was like a very standard query letter. So it was not bad in any way. It checked every box I'd queried before. But for example, my... um book is told from three points of view. The book's The View from the Very Best House in Town. It's told from three points of view. And one of them is a really pompous mansion who has like a huge attitude and adds a lot of humor to the book, but also like insights that I didn't feel like I could get anywhere else. And I think it's something unique about the book. I mentioned that like in the fourth pair, you know, the kind of after you've given the like, this is what it's about. I was like, blah, 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 is told from the point of view, blah, 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 and the mansion. But it like wasn't front and center. And that is something really unique about the book. You know, they said I picked one character and kind of told it from her point of view. Um, but I did, it, the letter itself didn't really distinguish between the three points of view. And I think it sounded just like a basic middle grade friendship story that was fine. And I think it, it is a middle grade friendship story. But I think the things that were unique about it weren't really coming through. Mm. I mean, there's gajillions of middle grade friendship stories and middle grade friendship stories are awesome. That's why, you know, I wrote one, but I do think it's just so competitive when you're querying that agents want to sort of know why this one, but you're the agent. So tell me if this is, that's right. That's what I tell people all the time is there, there's got to be something that makes it stand out in the market among competing titles. Exactly. And I think my query, it was very competent. Do you know what I mean? But it wasn't like it it was you could use it and be like, this is what you do in this paragraph. This, but it wasn't like it wasn't a standout. It was just a highly competent query. Mm -hmm. So then I spent the entire month of September completely rewriting my I mean, probably more than that. But I was like, I spent September just rewriting this. Like, I was like, I am going to beat this thing into submission. <laughs> I mean, it was so hard. So then what happened? But everything online was like only use max two points of view. So then I Googled multiple POV query. And also my critique partners gave like, could you use language like this? Could you use language like that? And even though I don't know that I use much of that language directly, it was much higher energy than what I was doing mm -hmm. and much more voicey than what I was doing. You know, it's never a bad thing to have a template to kind of look at and work off of. And the ones that I thought were mo most effective, and I think I sent you the one for Kimberly Vale that maybe you can put in the show notes. It both introduced each character. So like paragraph one was, you know, character one, paragraph two was character two, paragraph three was character three, and then like a quick tie it all together. But also in each paragraph, it moved the story forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of have to figure out which character can yeah, push it forward, which is going to kind of tie it up with a bang for what you want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it was hard because I was like, not just like, how am I going to do a little bit in this character's voice in a very few number of words, but also how am I going to tell a little bit more of the story from a different point of view that's going to still make it make sense in a query letter? Um, and what's also my hook going to be? 
um, because there wasn't a book that was a really great hook. But I was like, but maybe there are authors who are a good hook. So that's another thing I think for comping. Sometimes we feel like, oh, well, if it's not, I don't know, Star Wars meets The Breakfast Club, or I don't know, you know, like something super kind of high concept, then I don't know how to do it. At least I felt like that. And my stuff isn't super high concept. And so, but like, you know, certain authors still have a certain feel about them. Maybe they use a little bit more magic. Maybe they write tearjerkers. Maybe they have thrillers that have you on the edge of their seat, whatever. But using those elements that I comped it that way, I think that helped a lot too. I sent that, um, I don't know, to a handful of agents, another small batch, but this one included Molly Kerhan, who was one of the agents I was super excited about last time. And she had requested a full, but then passed because she didn't have time to read. Um, and I sent it to her, I think like October 1st, and I got a full request about a week later. And then, and she's um, very responsive, just generally, and also on queries. And um, then about a week after that, she um, DM'd me and emailed me, like trying to set up a time to talk. And I think she was at um, a conference. So we had to wait a few days and then she offered rep and it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, in the call, just like the, her feedback was so good. I think we just connected personally. And I feel this way even more having worked with her. For me, she was a complete package in terms of having like a great editorial eye, you know, great business sense, just, you know, experience doing a whole range of stuff. And I also just really liked her. So, so you did some revisions with Molly and then did y'all go out on sub? We did. Um, and it's funny, the title was like the very last thing. So she showed me her, the letter and I thought it was great. And, and then I was like, wait, what, what title are we using? I had come even oh, with even within my querying, my two rounds of querying, I queried with different titles. I need to <laughs> after having you know been on sub for two years with nothing. Um, within a couple of weeks, we had some interest, and then uh, Molly notified people that there was interest, and then a couple of weeks after that, so about a month, a little less than a month after she had query or what uh, submitted, um, it went to auction. Mm. Interestingly, that was March 13th, 2020. It was that Friday when like everything was oh, shutting no. down. It was so <laughs> surreal. Yeah. But we went through the auction process and then um, I decided to go with Susan Van Meter at Walker US Candlewick. And it's also being going to be published by Walker UK um, in the fall. Can you read your successful query letter for us? Dear Molly. Based on your interest in middle grade fiction with a strong sense of place, I thought you might enjoy Everywhere House, a middle grade novel told from the perspective of a pompous McMansion, the girl that adores it, and the boy she might lose it to. Complete at 47,000 words, it would appeal to fans of Anne Ursu and Catherine Applegate. 12-year-old Asha Wood is an architecture aficionado, and her favorite place is the one she's no longer permitted to visit, Donnybrook Mansion, home to spiral staircases, multiple turrets, and unfortunately, her nemesis, Preston Donaldson. No one understands how Asha feels about Donnybrook except her best friend, Sam Moss, who's autistic like her. So when Sam switches schools, Asha's lost. When Sam becomes a Donnybrook regular, Asha's livid. Preston already has a house she loves. Asha's not going to let her steal her best friend, too. Going to Castleton Academy was supposed to make Sam feel like a star. 
Turns out it's his personal black hole of misery until Preston warms to him and his classmates fall in line. Life at Sam's dream school is stabilized and he won't let anyone, not even Asha, mess that up. Donnybrook believes it's the little things. It's elevator, it's roof deck that set it apart from the riffraff. But when it's Princess Preston manipulates those very features to trick and trap Sam, Donnybrook is shaken to its foundation. That's not the purpose of a home, is it? As Preston games get more dangerous, Sam struggles with whether playing along is a fair price for peace at school. And Asha grapples with what she's willing to risk for a fading friendship. Because if she returns to Donnybrook, it'll be as an intruder in a long shot bid to rescue Sam. However they look at it, they're in a mansion load of trouble. I'm a 2019 Pitch Wars mentor. I've been an author mentor match mentor, and I'm an active member of SCWI. My work for children has been published in several magazines. Also, I'm Indian American, like my character Asha, and I have an autistic family member. I worked with an autistic sensitivity reader on this book in addition to doing research and listening. I amicably parted ways with my agent this year, and I'm happy to give details on request. This manuscript has not been on submission. The first 10 pages are pasted below. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Mira Trahan. Thank you for sharing that. So how has your experience been since signing that first book contract? Especially let us know if there were any surprises along the way. I feel like I should not, I'm knocking on wood. I shouldn't say this out loud. It's been like remarkably smooth in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the only thing is everything was a little bit slower because of the pandemic. So, but my life has also been more chaotic because of the pandemic. So that actually was just fine <laughs> with me. Um so, I mean, the real surprises were all good, like, you know, the process of, you know, creating a cover, which I, you know, had input on, which was great. Mm. Details in the book. I mean, I had, you know, multiple copy editors, just how many people are involved in making a book was amazing. All right. It is time for our quick round. I call it author DNA. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Pantser, but maybe a little plantser not a plotter. Do you tend to overwrite or underwrite? Underwrite. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Morning. Whenever you start a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? It's a character and a little theme kind of floating in there. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Silence. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it down. What tools or software do you use to draft? I draft in Word. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising like 10,000%. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Mostly sequential. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Extrovert in real life, introvert on social media. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, and now we're going to talk about the second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey, and were they realized, or did you overcome them, or how did that shake out? Probably like all authors, I was worried about, you know, having what I wanted in a book respected, and and I don't mean on like the detail, like this not cutting the sentence, but my vision for a book, and particularly coming you know, as an Indian American writer or when I was writing about autism, like 
to me, it was not worth publishing a book where the representation wasn't right and good Mm -hmm. or a book that repeated problems I had seen in other books or other marginalized writers had seen in other books. So I was worried about that. But ironically, I realized that was actually kind of a strength because I felt so strongly about that that like like the R&R I wouldn't do for the first agent. I was like, I actually don't want to put, like I'd rather not be published than put something out that I think is wrong. And so it probably gave me more of a backbone to be like, no, I, I'm not going to make that change if it's not right. So it was something I was, luckily I worked with people, you know, who were super respectful. And when I'd say like, this isn't going to work for this reason, even as simple as maybe they weren't doing anything ableist, but just like, I don't think this is, a true representation of what would happen. What you're saying is not bad. It's not stigmatizing. It's just, I don't think accurate. Like we had, and for the autism book, since I am not autistic, we had a fantastic sensitivity reader and a fantastic author, Sarah Caput, who's also a neurodiversity advocate. And I mean, I also felt like if we're not willing to listen to like Sarah on the representation issues, then like, then it's not worth publishing this book because there's nothing more important than that. So, but I was nervous about that, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe one thing I was nervous about really early on, actually, I think this could be helpful for, because I remember when I was first starting to write, I was really worried about books that have like any similarity to mine. So I'd be like, oh my God, those people live in a house. I'm exaggerating. I wasn't that bad, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I did meet someone who was like, oh, I'm writing a book after, you know, I had my contract where a house is a narrator. And I was like, that's fine. Like we're two different people who are probably going to come at this in totally different ways. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there's so much focus on the concept level, but in reality, it's how you execute. I think at least for me. All right. It's time for the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? So for the first, like probably at least four drafts, I retype like I, I will rewrite from scratch and I'll have my old draft out, but I'll like, even the parts I want to keep, I'll retype them in. And I feel like that really helps me smooth out language. It really helps me um, catch any like tiny plot inconsistencies. I'm very, like, I cannot stand plot inconsistencies. It's a thing with me. So it, it really forces me to be like looking at that over and over. I also am someone who, not for the first draft, because my first drafts aren't like coherent, but you know, once I have coherent drafts, I do read out loud every time. And it's kind of exhausting. But I think it makes such a difference at the line level, just makes my writing better. So I do do that, even though sometimes usually around page 70, like, actually, I think every time I've done that in the last like, four times. So this is with different books, I have literally fallen asleep around page 75. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not saying it's easy, and it can get a little much. But I also think in the end, It just makes my work a lot more polished. And so it's worth it. So this is sort of my third quirk. Maybe this is unique. I like really big breaks, like at least a couple months between my drafts. And I think one of my strengths, I think, as a writer is I'm very good about going back to my work as a reader. But I think part of that is because I'm taking these super long breaks. And I've tried to not because I'm like, that's so inefficient. I need to do it after two weeks. And then it's like, what I do is totally worthless. So I found it's actually more efficient for me to take those super long breaks. And I'm quite unsentimental then when I come back, or if I am sentimental about something, 
often that's a sign that there's something thematically going on that I need to pull on. I need to keep it maybe not in those words, but maybe there's some emotion there that I'm trying to hold on to in my work, even if it, or maybe it needs to go somewhere else or whatever. So uh, switching gears a little bit, when you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? A few things. One, I think I've been really fortunate to have a super supportive family. My husband and my kids are so supportive and they're read my work early on and they like it. And they're like, this is so good. I don't know why no one's taking it. Like just hearing that, like you need to hear that from somewhere. My um, writing friends like Maria and my friend Allison and other friends just being like, we believe in you. We think this is great. And also we like you personally. We don't think less of you because you wrote a bad draft, like knowing that that's, and then understanding the industry and that it really, it's hard for everyone. And even I think the people, there are very few quick successes, but I think there are a few, but even that has its own drawbacks. Like that's not an easy path either. And so just maybe trying to give myself space to understand there's no ease. And the last thing I'm going to say actually is sometimes I just don't force it. Like it's okay to need to take a break from writing. It's okay to be like, this just hurts too much, or I need to like cry it out, or I'm going to go for a walk or hike. Like it's, you know, it's okay to not force it and just let the ideas come when they come. And then usually the final thing that keeps me going is maybe because I don't fully um, know what's going on in my stories. I want to know what happens. And often thematically, I'm grappling with some big questions myself. You know, I feel like in children's literature, that I mean, hopefully all literature, but definitely children's, the two elements are like honesty and hope. And often when I'm writing something, there's something kind of tangential, you might not even get directly from the specific plot things. But they're big picture questions I'm grappling with. And I want to find a way to answer those questions both honestly and with hope for myself. And so that kind of keeps me going, you know, because I want to be able to get there. Nice. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? Listen to lots of advice, but follow what resonates with you. And something might not resonate with you now that might resonate with you later, but don't try to force something. There is not one right way to do that. So I'm about to give you advice, but like, you know, if it doesn't resonate with you, this is, there's no one right way to do this. The second is as much as you can try to let this be a journey and try to, you know, as I said, I early on entered a contest, got the most requests of anyone had incredible interest and the very best thing, like a million times, even if I had signed with someone from that contest is that I made one of my closest writing friends out of that contest, Maria. And part of the reason Maria and I, I think got close other than she's awesome is that like, we've been through ups and downs together and we understand, you know, the process. It's okay if it takes a while and Use that time to work on your craft and to get better at bridging like those ideas in your, what's in your head, which is probably really is brilliant and figure out how to get that brilliance on the page. And that takes time. You know, all the things you hear, you need to read a lot. You need to read in your genre. You need to read out of your genre. You need, I actually think that's all for me personally true. And it would freak me out because I think mentally I was trying to do it all in six months. And like, it's a years long process for lots of people. And I think to the extent you can embrace that, you'll be happier and a better writer. Awesome. 
So I call this the acknowledgments portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. You've mentioned some of them, but who are some of the people who have helped you along the way and how? So my husband, Kurt, for being a cheerleader um, and reading my drafts and even when things don't make sense being saying like they don't make sense, but I'm sure it will once you write it. But also like being a little bit harsh in that, like, I don't get this part or this part dragged, but also big picture. I think there's something there. And this is like an amazing idea, you know, um, and my kids for being cheerleaders and, you know, being so supportive and my parents, my whole family and, and friends, I'm not going to list all my non-writing friends, although they've been fabulous, but I do want to list some of my writing friends. Um, Maria, who I mentioned, Allison Green Myers, um, Mayor Haggerty um, were readers of my work. Sarah Caput has been terrific. Arielle Vishni, who was my mentee through Author Mentor Match, helped me with my query, as did um, Angel McQuaid, um, and helped me get that in order, as did Allison. Um, my friend Lakita Wilson, who, again, she has a middle grade coming out in July. Um, as well as she's got a whole bunch of projects coming out and they're amazing. These were all people who've seen me through the ups and downs and, you know, validated my experience. My agent, Molly Kerhan, who is just such a wonderful human being and so supportive also through the ups and downs. I don't feel like she doesn't just like me when I have a really pretty draft. You know, what I mean? <laughs> you know she, I mean, she's completely there and in all senses. And her feedback, I think she really understands kind of, it's like a telepathy thing when I give her a draft that's not great. She knows exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, the whole team and everyone at the Bent Agency, I mean, they have such a good, you know, organization there and so many people behind the scenes helping. You know, at Walker Candlewick and Walker UK, Susan, who I mentioned, and her assistant, Lindsay Warren, um, Karen Walsh and publicity, Maya Tatsukawa, who made this book so beautiful, and Nicole Miles. I mean, I can't tell you. Like, I went to a Barnes and Noble to sign stock, and they were like, "You're the one with the cover." I, like, <laughs> I am the one with the cover. I mean, I'm like, I think that's me. Yes, I'm probably forgetting a lot of people, and I feel bad because there have been so many people who have been helpful, but that's a handful. I always tell people, don't worry, they probably don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are listening, I will think of you in about three and a half minutes. <laughs> okay, Mira, before you go, can you let us know what we can expect to see from you in the future? So I have another middle grade coming out from Walker Candlewick. Um, it's a fantasy this time, so entirely different cast of characters. And it's about snow, among other things. All right. Mira, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Mira's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.